Let's pray one more time. Father, uh, as we come to your word uh, to, to talk about why we even do that in the first place, we desperately need your wisdom. We ask that you would give it to us freely now. In Jesus' name, amen. Grab a seat. So, I mentioned this a couple times now in the last few weeks, but we are taking a break from our endless Second Corinthians series uh, up until the summer to, to tackle a few different topics. And so, um, in March and April, we'll be walking through Lent together with most of the Christians in the world who will also be walking through that season. And then in the month of May, we'll spend about four weeks talking about faith and work. And when I say faith and work, we're, we're not talking about whether or not you can earn your salvation and, and faith without works is dead, but, but rather we're talking about what does it look like for you in your nine to five uh, to, to practice your career to the glory of God. This is a college and career ministry, and come May, a lot of you are going to be finishing the college part and sliding into the career part, and so we want to talk about what does it look like to be an engineer or a mechanic or a school teacher or an artist or a poet to the glory of God. And so we'll give the month of May to that question. But the next three weeks, we've set aside to talk about the church. And I realize that that might seem a little bit meta to some of you. Uh, in, in the sense that you are coming here to the church to hear this guy who's employed by the church talk about the church. It feels kind of like a scene out of Inception. Uh, but, but I want to explain why I think this conversation is so important and why I think us spending these next few weeks under the word of God, letting our opinion be shaped by the word of God, why that is significant. And for me, the main reason why we're doing this series is this deep-seated conviction that I have that the primary way in which God intends to grow his people is through their participation in the life of the church. That's not the only way, but it is the primary way. We live in a highly individualistic culture. We live in a Burger King culture where you can have it your way because you're worth it. I guess that's Burger King and shampoo kind of smeared together. Uh, but, but this sort of sense that I deserve to have what I want in the way that I want it because I'm worth it and it's about me and I'm significant, it really has bled into the shape of the church and the way that Christians walk out their Christianity. I know that I'm not the only person in this room who's sat in a Bible study and we've read a passage of scripture and then the group leader has said, yeah, so what does this mean for you? Rather than just asking the question, what does this mean? Because we have been shaped by this sort of rabid individualism as though truth is a matter of preference. What do you prefer for this verse to mean in your life? And then we tend to tailor it towards convenience. We prefer for it to mean the easiest possible thing so that we don't have to change. We throw out phrases all the time like, I don't need to go to church because I am the church. That's a cute saying, but you should stop saying it. Because it is silly, but lots of people live this out. We've, we've got a huge issue right now in Bay Life of people who think, I don't really need to go to church because I can watch online and sleep in, and I can go to church from my bed, just watch it on the YouTube. And this idea of actually coming together physically and bodily around other Christians on Sunday morning is, is something that has just been chucked for the idea that I've got podcasts and Hillsong records and I can just do it that way. I don't go to church, I am the church. But I just want to 
point this out to you. Maybe you're there right now, and that's what you're thinking, and I don't mean to disparage you or dis- disrespect you or kind of smear you. I realize I just did that, but I'm sorry. But, but the reality is that that sort of thinking would have been absolutely incoherent to the apostles, absolutely incoherent to the the patristics who were at the Council of Nicaea, absolutely incoherent to the medieval scholastics, completely incoherent to the reformers, entirely not understandable to the Puritans or the people involved in the Great Awakening and the founders of all of the major denominations. That would have been an idea that just sounded insane to them. This, this idea that you have within your power the ability to gather with other Christians and worship and pray and be taught by scripture, you're not in prison, it's not illegal, you have it within your power and you say, nah, I'm a pass on that one, would have blown their minds. One of the earliest statements of Christian belief is the Apostles' Creed, later sort of codified as the Nicene Creed. If you grew up Catholic, you've probably heard it before. In, in our modern day and age, it begins with, I believe in one God, Father Almighty. But that's been changed from, from, from what it was when it came out of the Council of Nicaea. Not, not doctrinally, it still says the same things, but we often recite that creed by saying, I believe. When it came out of Nicaea, when the early Christians produced it, it said, we believe. And that is a significant difference. This is why Paul in the book of Ephesians, I believe it is, he can say the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to we who are being saved. It is the very power of God. We desperately need to reclaim this vision of the church, that it's not this fractured group of individuals doing their own thing in their own way, but it is a vibrant community of people united together under shared beliefs and signs of grace. It's important for us to talk about this. I guess the other reason why we're having this conversation is because there is no shortage of stories of people who have really come to the brink of giving up on the idea of church altogether because they've been damaged and they've been wounded and they've been hurt. It's almost a parody of itself to hear about another kid who was hurt by his youth group leader who starts a blog and a podcast to complain about it. Like it's almost ironic to hear about the next one because it just keeps happening over and over and over again. And it's not people who jump ship on Christianity. They jump ship on the church and I get it, that, that a lot of us might be coming from that sort of background. Maybe you've been damaged by uh, a youth group leader. Maybe you had a church leader that you looked up to, that you respected and admired, and they, they disqualified themselves. They did something reprehensible to where they can't continue in ministry. Maybe, maybe you were part of a church where you had questions that weren't answered well, and you were shunned for them. And so if you're here and you, you have hurt and pain that has come from the church, I believe that that's valid and those are sins that the church needs to repent of. I'm not saying that it's not important. I'm not saying that it's not significant. But man, we just spent the past 20 weeks talking about the church in Corinth and they suck. They're absolutely horrible. They are the the textbook case of a church gone wrong. They turn on the guy who planted them and keeps trying to help them. And yet 10 years after the letter the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians. And in chapter two, he makes this statement. He says, we are God's workmanship. Now, you've probably heard that in a youth group context applied to your self-esteem. I don't wanna snatch this from you. 
But the reality is that it's not really talking about your self-esteem. Is it true that you are fearfully and wonderfully made? Absolutely. But in Ephesians chapter two, when Paul says, we're God's workmanship, he's talking about the church, that it is the very work of God. And this is the guy who's had half of his churches turn on him and wound him and reject him and cast him out. If anybody has the right to a podcast complaining about the church, it's Paul. And at the end of all of this experience, he can still say to the Ephesians, in spite of all of this, we are God's workmanship. So what I'm not asking us to do is to uh, stick our heads in the sand and, and be naive about the problems and the shortcomings and the errors of the church. There's a whole lot of them. There's plenty. I'm well aware of them. But we desperately need to recover this apostolic vision of the beauty of the church. And rather than abandoning the church, we need to see it as a place that we long to see conform to the image of Christ and restored to repentance. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about what the church is, what it should be marked by, and what it looks like for us to be good members of the church and to participate in it well. And as you kind of walk down this road of asking the question of, of what do churches look like or what they should look like, you don't get very far down that road before you run into the Bible. The reality is that all true Christian churches are shaped and defined and guided and governed by the authority of Scripture. The, the Quran refers to Christians as a people of the book, and that's a valid description of you and I. We are a people of the book. I mean, all you have to do is look at Thursday nights to see how true that statement is. Um, I know that it was unpleasant or uh, maybe awkward for her, but I just made Zaida read like 30 verses for you. <laughs> And that was intentional and not like mean-spirited at all. But hey, we're a people of the book. So we're going to read from that book that we're about. We read from scripture in our services. Uh, during our worship, we sing these songs. But then in between the lyrics are the passages of scripture that the words of these songs are rooted in. So you know that it's not just some guy in a field with his guitar winging it. And we said, oh, that sounds kind of nice. We'll do that because we want you to know that it is grounded in Scripture. Jason referenced three different biblical figures and passages of Scripture when he led us in prayer earlier. I preach from this book every week. You will never walk in here and see me with a copy of Don Quixote and say, turn to page 375, and we're going to talk about this old guy in a night suit who chases windmills. That never happens. We are a people shaped and guided by this book, and every week we come to the Lord's Supper and we read the exact same passage of Scripture. And the night when the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he broke it and given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Every single week, we are a people of the book. But what I want you to understand is that that's not a new idea for the Christian church. That's not a modern idea. That's not even a Reformation idea. That trajectory of the church of Jesus being shaped and governed and guided by Scripture, that trajectory was set from the very beginning. So if you have your Bibles, do me a courtesy. Turn to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3. We'll be in verse 14 through to chapter 4. And as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of background so you know what we are jumping into. So, Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul towards the very end of his life, 
Uh, He's gone around planting churches and uh, wrestling with churches, making bad choices and trying to set them back on on the proper direction and coordinates. And this has just been this rise and fall of his life for years and years and years. And finally, he finds himself in Rome, uh, very likely on the verge of death. And there's three letters that are produced during this period of Paul's life. It's First and Second Timothy in the book of Titus. All of them are written to young church leaders and pastors who Paul has sort of trained up. And he realizes, I'm not going to be around much longer for you to ask questions. So I'm, I'm going to lay this out for you as clearly as I can. And so Timothy is this young pastor in the city of Ephesus that Paul also wrote a letter to. And what Timothy is dealing with is these factions of people in his church who've become real, uh, oddly fixated on sort of these fringe conspiracy theory ideas around scripture. And they've, they've started to co- sort of bend and go off in these heretical and dangerous directions. And Timothy is this young guy, at least by ancient standards, and he is looking at the fact that Paul is on his deathbed and he's saying, I don't know what to do. This church is falling apart. I need your help. You can't go and get your head cut off on me. I need you. I gotta ask some questions. And so Paul writes this letter to Timothy, this young pastor, telling him what he is to do as he leads the church of Jesus forward beyond the age of the apostles. And he says this towards the end of the letter in verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Stop for a second. I realize this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think this is significant and it's encouraging. Paul says to Timothy, remember what you have learned from childhood been acquainted with the sacred writings. If you look a little bit earlier in this book, what you see is a little bit of Timothy's background. He's not totally raised in a Christian home. His dad isn't mentioned, and so it's likely that his dad was an unbeliever, but his mother and his grandmother were both Christians, uh, named Eunice and Lois, which are perfect old lady names. And Eunice and Lois have trained up Timothy in the gospel and in the knowledge of the scriptures. They've raised him up around these ideas. He's been exposed to the truth of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and the inauguration of the kingdom of God. He's been exposed to it from the very beginning of his life. And I realize that there's some of us in here who are raising children. There's some of us in here who have kids and you are doing your best to be a Eunice and a Lois, not in the old lady name area, but in, in the way that you train your children up in knowing the Bible and loving the Bible, but more than that, loving the God to whom the scriptures testify. And you deeply want for your children to understand the gospel. And I realize that there are tons of horror stories of kids who were raised up in awesome Christian homes and they ran straight off the deep end. But man, I want you to know if you are in that position of training up godly children, your labor is not in vain because for every person running off a cliff, there are 10 Timothys who are in the middle of difficulty and they are looking back on the foundation that their parents laid for them in the scriptures and in the gospel and they are drawing strength from that for the road ahead. And so Paul points Timothy back. And he says this in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now that is an astounding statement. In the Greek, this phrase, all scripture is breathed out by God, it's really just three words. Uh, We kind of have to fill in the gaps here because Greek words mean more than English words. They count for more. Uh, And so there's three words here. And one of them is the word theopneustos or theonustos, just depending on how you pronounce the Greek. And it's not found anywhere outside of Paul's letter in any other ancient writing. And most people think Paul just literally just invented a word here. And so I know some of you are, are like lit majors who have graduated from Um, I'm sure wonderful schools like USF or wherever you've studied literature. Uh, I went to USF. That's not a diss at all. Uh, But you probably know more than I do about Shakespeare. But but what what I do know of him I think is really fascinating in that he had this commitment to the power of words and their significance. Uh, And he had this commitment to the idea that that there is a perfect word to convey the idea that he is trying to express in his writing. And so he would labor over this and, and languish over it. And there would come times where Shakespeare would say, there's not a word to convey what I want, so I'm gonna make one up. And he would just invent words. And he would take words and he would smash them together and he would, he would just create these words to convey his ideas. And so uh, one website that I Googled, which may or may not be trustworthy, said that there's something like 1,700 English words that Shakespeare invented that are used today. And so when Paul begins to describe to Timothy the power and the authority and the trustworthiness and significance of Scripture, it's almost as if he says, there's nothing right now that can do that. I need to, I need to make something up. And so he takes two Greek words. He takes theos, which means God, and he takes pneuma, which means breath and air, and he smashes them together. Theanustas. God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. It is the very exhale of the triune God. That is a significant statement. But what is also significant is the modifier before it. He says, all scripture is God-breathed. Because Timothy is dealing with a group of people in his church who are sort of honing in on the genealogies specifically, just the specific little parts of scripture that almost seem like they're important, but, but maybe not worth all of your attention and time. And it's almost as if they've honed in on one part of, part of scripture to the exclusion of everything else. And to them, Paul says, not just the genealogies, but all scripture is God-breathed. You've probably encountered some modern examples of people who just hone in on one part of the scriptures to the exclusion of everything else. Uh, Maybe you've got the crazy uncle, maybe you are the crazy uncle who's obsessed with the left-behind books and all you read is the book of Revelation and you are just down in it, man, like prophecy, end times, you've got your newspaper, you've calculated the day that Jesus is coming back, you are on it, but you have so honed in on that that you've excluded the gospels and the letter of Isaiah. You've excluded the Psalms, you've excluded the historical books that recount the history of Israel because you have hyper-focused on one issue. And to you, Paul says, All scripture is God-breathed. 
Maybe you've encountered somebody who said, well, it's, it's fine that you believe X, Y, and Z. That's cool. But you know, Jesus never said anything about that. So it must not be that important. And this phrase is sort of thrown out as if to say, well, we really just focus on the red letter parts of the Bible. And so it doesn't matter what Paul said or what Peter said or what Moses said or what David said or what Ezekiel said. It matters the red letter part. And to that, Paul says, all scripture is God breathed. Or perhaps you've encountered the mainline Protestant idea that Scripture is not necessarily the Word of God, but it contains the Word of God. It's almost this sort of Orwellian perversion where it says that all Scripture is inspired, but some Scripture is more inspired than others. And to that, Paul says, Pasa grafe theanustas. All Scripture is God breathed. Or perhaps you've encountered the neo-orthodox Barthian idea that scripture is not the word of God but becomes the word of God in this existential sense when it's preached out loud. And to you, Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed. But maybe you're here and you are a Christian or maybe you're not a Christian and you hear this phrase and and you've got some questions and they're actually good questions uh, because we know that God's finger did not sort of materialize over parchment and scribble some things out and then kind of toss it our way. He, did, he didn't post it on Bible Gateway directly from heaven. And so you say, how does it, how does it work that, that we know that there are human authors behind Scripture and yet it is God-breathed? Uh, can I first just say that Paul and Peter and the authors of the New Testament, they're not idiots. They're not dumb. They know that people wrote Scripture. But the question for them is who stands behind the person writing. And so Peter in his second letter can say that no prophecy of Scripture comes by human will alone, but men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so there are men writing as they are guided by the winds of the Spirit of God that is the very Spirit of truth. And there's sort of a helpful analogy that might might get you to think through this this sort of model that the Bible puts forward. Um, We live in this period now where musicians can actually record their music. And so you've got people who are these virtuosos who play like 15 different instruments and they say, I don't need a band, I can do everything. And I'll just record all my parts. So if you're like me and you are sort of a recovering indie emo kid, then you know who the Rocket Summer is. Um, You remember Mr. Bryce Avery with his really high girl voice. A few people do. That's awesome. I didn't know if anybody would remember that. That's great. Um, and so uh, if, if you have no idea what I'm talking about and you missed the girl gene phase in your early days, um, the Rocket Summer was this band in the early 2000s, and the, the guy who it wasn't really a band because the guy played everything. And so he played drums, and he played bass, and he played guitar, and he sang like a girl. It was great during that period of my life. And so he would just sit down, and he would record everything. And the reality is that... Nobody is going to dispute the fact that drums and percussion have a different function in the overarching, uh, the overarching product of a musical piece. Uh, they're not operating on the same frequency and wavelength as a bass guitar. Bass guitar doesn't sound like electric guitar. Nobody sings like an electric guitar. They all have this different tone and timbre about themselves. But behind each instrument stands the same musician who is guiding them along to produce a coherent whole. 
And this is the image that we get of Scripture, that in the same way that Peter and Paul and Moses and David and Ezekiel and Solomon and all, all of the authors of the Old and New Testament, they have their different emphases. They have their different interests. They have their different focus. But there's the same Holy Spirit who, like a wind over a reed, guides them to write a coherent and truthful symphony that testifies to the work of the triune God. And so it won't do for you and I to pit Paul against Jesus, against James, James against Moses. That would be like you sitting in the midst of a chorus and saying, the alto is singing something different than the baritone. This is wrong. What you've missed is that they're singing together, not in conflict, but in complementary harmony because it is the same composer who stands behind each of them as their guide. And so this is the vision which Paul lays out for the scriptures. And this has been the testimony of the church for 2,000 years, that when rightly understood where scripture speaks and what it says, God himself says. I mean, this is so vital for you and I to understand when we talk about the life of the church and why we come together. I know some of us have come from more charismatic backgrounds. I love my charismatic brothers and sisters in the Lord. But there's this phrase that keeps getting used within that sort of tribe of Christianity. And I've had brothers and sisters come to church and they say, you know, I'm just really looking for a word from God today. I really want to hear a word from the Lord in this service. And somebody will stand up and they'll preach and they'll just absolutely kill it and do a great job. And at the end, you'll hear something like, that was great, but man, I just really just needed a word from God this morning. And I feel like Paul would just stand up on his chair and pull whatever hair he had left out and go, you did hear from God. The scriptures, that which is theonistos, that which is breathed out by him, written by men, is carried along by the Holy Spirit. It was opened, it was preached, it was proclaimed. You have heard, you may not have heard what you wanted, but where the scripture speaks, God speaks. And if you have heard the scripture speak, you have heard God speak. You have had your word. And this conviction, it stands behind why we would even have somebody stand up here and read 30 or 40 verses to you. Because there is this deep conviction that, that I have that has been formed by the scriptures. Apart from me, the Bible still speaks. Apart from the Bible, I have nothing of value to say. And so I have no problem having somebody stand up here and read the very prayer of Jesus for his church and letting that speak for itself. But what we see throughout scripture is that when God speaks, things happen. Genesis begins with God speaking and the cosmos explodes into existence. And he continues to speak through the prophets and the scriptures throughout the Old Testament. And as he speaks, you see nations rise and fall and the dead raised. And it is no different with the word of God written. Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And then he begins to describe what scripture does, the function that it serves in the life of the church. He says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Each of these points is so significant. It's why the church gathers around the word of God because it teaches us. It tells us what God is like. It tells us what he expects of us. It tells us what he has done in history and in time and in space. And that is something to me that is incredibly beautiful. 
Because if this is the book that God has breathed out, then what that says about God is that he has not left us to our own devices to just sort of figure out what he's like or what he wants, like a spouse giving the other one the silent treatment and then getting mad when you don't respond to the silent treatment properly. God has not left us to ourselves, but he condescends so that his people might know him and be taught to love him as they know him more deeply. So it teaches Paul says it's useful for reproof and correction. You you don't have to sit in church very long to feel the Bible correct you in things. I I give that about a week before you feel that pull. When I was in college, my first class on my first day was Composition 1. Professor was Dr. Green. I don't know if he's still at USF or not. I don't know why he was teaching literature because his PhD was in the philosophy and ideology of horror cinema. So he was my favorite professor ever. And so after the first day of class, maybe not the first day, probably the first week when I'd figured this out, I go to his office and I give him this like nasty little piece of paper that I pulled out of my binder and I said, I want a list of the craziest things you've ever seen. And so Dr. Green gives me the list. And then I go to my friends and I go, we're going to watch all of these and it's going to be awesome. And I, it was a dark time in my life. <laughs> but we worked through chainsaw-wielding maniacs and tortured summer camp people being chased through the woods. We worked through it piece by piece. And there were certain times where we would set rules like first person to cover their eyes has to buy us all dinner. First person to look away or squirm like you're paying for all of our like big gulps or, you know, it was ridiculous. But, but there came this day where I was, I was thumbing through my Bible for some reason or another. I don't know if I was actually doing a devotional or if I was just trying to be spiritual and thumb through it. And I land on Psalm 11 where it says, God hates those who love violence. And I went, oh, crap. (laughs) And I looked at my list. (laughs) And I tried to convince myself that it was really just the storytelling that compelled me. (laughs) But I knew that wasn't true. And I'm not going to tell you that I've gotten this perfectly down. Like, I really haven't. I've seen a lot of horror movies in my day. But in that moment, I felt something of what Paul was saying here, that the the scripture breathed out by God, it both reproves us and it corrects us, and I felt it correct me in that moment. But Paul goes on, and he says that the word of God is useful for training in righteousness. And we talked about this last week, but the astounding thing about being trained is that very often you don't notice the changes happening until you are a long way down that road. If anybody's ever begun a workout plan or or a weightlifting routine, it it takes months before you really notice a difference, but if somebody who knew you a few months before you started it sees you, they see the difference, and you, you just don't see it right away. So it is with Scripture that after tonight, I'm gonna be honest, you might not feel any different. You might not go home and immediately fast for the rest of the week, but day in and day out, Sunday in and Sunday out as the people of God gather together in submission to the word of God. It shapes and transforms and changes us so that two years down the road, you will not be the same as you were before you sat under the scriptures. Rosaria Butterfield, pretty prominent voice in evangelicalism right now, but she was not always a Christian. 
Uh, there was a time where she was a women's lit professor at Syracuse University on her way to tenure. And she wanted to write a book about how crazy evangelicals were. And so she said, well, if I'm going to put them in their place, I should probably figure out what this book that they love so much says. And so she found a Presbyterian pastor and she began to read the Bible through over and over and over again. And about two years into this, she'd read the Bible something like seven to ten times all the way through. One of her friends who was a non-believer took her aside and said, Rosaria, I am worried about you because this Bible reading is changing you. And you are not who you were when you began this. But is this not the promise that God makes? His word does not return void and it does in fact train and change and shape us as we submit ourselves to it. But notice what Paul gets to after he's made this grand statement about the God-breathedness of Scripture. Your chapter and verse marker doesn't help you here in your Bible. That's why Paul didn't include it when he wrote the letter. So let me read for you verses 14 through to the main point that Paul is getting to in chapter 4. Pay no attention to the chapter and verse. Paul says this, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul lays out this glorious reality about, about Scripture. The, its, its ultimate source being the very breath of God, its power to change and transform and convict and, and rebuke and train up. And after saying all of that, he says, preach the word. Because all these things are true, preach. The Christian church has heeded that call for 2,000 years, that when we come together, the scriptures will be preached and taught. I mean, my hope in this ministry, but in our church at Bay Life, is that we would heed this call. Every single week that you show up here or on a Sunday morning, somebody will stand before you and they will preach the word. But it's not simply a passive thing. You all come here and you hear some finely educated pastor who is very eloquent who preaches the word to you. Uh, there's this great Reformed theologian named Herman, Herman Bavink, and when he talks about the church, he talks about it in two sort of expressions. He talks about the church's institution. Essentially, what does the church look like when everybody comes together on a Sunday morning? And then he talks about the church's organism. What the, does the church look like when people are scattered out into their jobs and into the world throughout the week? And this charge that Paul makes, preach the word, it's not just a charge for me. And it's not just a charge for Timothy. It is a charge for all of us. We gather together on Sundays or on Thursdays and the word is preached. But my hope is that as you go out into your homes and your communities and your classrooms, you are preaching to one another. That you are teaching and exhorting and rebuking and encouraging and edifying. That whether we are together or we are apart, we preach the word to one another and we challenge each other. 
But there will come a day where Christians do not need their Bibles. There will come a day where all of this preaching has come to an end. It's described by a Scottish theologian by the name of Jeffrey Thomas and why it is important that Christians spend significant time as the church of God in their Bibles. He says it in this way. He says, let the word break over your heart and your mind again and again as the years go by. And imperceptibly, there will come great changes in your attitude and your outlook and your conduct. You will probably be the last to recognize these. Often you will feel very, very small because of the increasingly supreme God of the Bible who becomes more wonderfully great as you read. So go on reading until you can read no longer. And then you will not need a Bible anymore because when your eyes close for the last time in death and never again read the word of God in scripture, you will open them to the word of God in the flesh. The same Jesus of the Bible whom you have known for so long standing before you. So the day will come when you have no need of the Bible because you will know perfectly the one to whom it testifies. But it is not this day. And until that day comes, the church of Jesus preaches the word. And that is what we are marked by. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious, so loving, so patient, so merciful, so kind. You are under no obligation to save. You are under no obligation to reveal yourself. But in your love and your goodness, you have by the Holy Spirit given us this book. Oh, make us people who love it and cherish it and submit to it, who never see ourselves as standing over it, who are never mastered, or who never masters of it, but we are mastered by it. Christ, you have prayed for us that we would be sanctified in the truth, and you have said thy word is truth and the scriptures cannot be broken. Make us such a people of unbreakable faith in the word. Not because we worship the Bible, but because it is through the scriptures that we know you at all. And it's by the scriptures that we love you more. Holy Spirit, take these things, bind them to our heart, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.